The portion of scripture on which tonight's teaching comes is from Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 44. I'll have it here on the screen. You can also find it in your service folders for the evening uh, if you'd like to reference it later. It reads as follows. This is picking up where Kyle left off a few minutes ago in a place called Pisidian Antioch. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. Now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. And what really what Paul is doing here is he's saying those psalms, they couldn't fully be met in the person of David. There had to be a greater David who would come that those psalms were really about. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to attain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas then were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the entire city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And this is God's word. Uh, This portion of scripture actually gives us the Apostle Paul's first recorded sermon. It might be his first sermon period, probably not, but it gives us his first recorded sermon. And what's interesting about it, there's, there's many things, but one of the interesting things is it sort of provides the platform for the second half of the book of Acts which mirrors, in some respects, the first half of the book of Acts. If you remember, Acts really kind of begins, at least in Acts chapter 2, with a sermon by the apostle Peter, and it's at Pentecost, and it's in Jerusalem. And from there, the the gospel ministry and the Christian uh, story of Jesus' resurrection moves out into the Palestinian world, but works primarily in Judea and Samaria. In the second half of the book of Acts, you also get another sermon. So here we are in Acts chapter 13. It's a sermon this time by the Apostle Paul. It's in Pisidian Antioch on one of his missionary journeys. And this sets the the stage for the rest of the book, which will be uh, the, the gospel moving out, not just into Judea and Samaria, but to all the ends of the earth, all the ends of the Mediterranean known world at the time, which is exactly what Jesus promised right before his ascension. 
Now, the two sermons that we get there, and by the way, there aren't a ton of sermons fully that we get in the Bible, or at least summary of those sermons. There's all sorts of interesting things you can learn by studying them. But these two sermons, which are pivotal in the book of Acts, Peter in Acts 2 and Paul in Acts 13, there's some very clear commonalities between the two of them, which should suggest something to us about our Christian teaching today as well. And the commonalities that we find is, number one, the Jewish forefathers were wrong and they screwed up a lot. Number two, God fulfilled everything that he had promised to those forefathers. So it wasn't for lack of uh, good warning. It wasn't for lack of good teaching. Uh, He made good on every promise he ever made. Uh, Number three, there's a warning to repent an encouragement to repent and turn from your former way of thinking and turn to these newly understood promises of God. And number four, the climax point of all of it is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah who has risen from the grave. In fact, all the other stuff is essentially just a buildup to that one single point. Jesus of Nazareth, the promised Lord and Messiah, rose from the grave. And everything that we believe and teach today has to hinge and has to direct on that. That should seem obvious, but so far as I can tell in Christian conversations, it, always, it isn't always. Here's why it's so important, and we're going to flesh this out and just spend our whole time tonight on that. If Jesus rose from the grave, everything is one way. With us, in this world, and for all eternity. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, everything is a completely different way and life has completely different meaning. What does that mean? We're going to break it simply into two points tonight that I will put as follows. We're going to look at the fact of the resurrection, the idea that it's this historical reality. It's not merely a teaching. It's not merely a dogma or a theology. It's a fact. It's something that actually happened in a concrete place in history. And number two, we're going to work out real briefly uh, the fear that the world has of what's next and why the resurrection is the only solution to that. So the fact of the resurrection and the fear of what's next. First of all, the fact of the resurrection. Last week, what we did is we spent a good deal of time talking about not Pisidian Antioch. I know that's confusing. Uh, There's two Antiochs. In fact, there's like 16 Antiochs in the ancient world, but in the Bible, we hear about two of them a lot. One of them is called Syrian Antioch and is on the eastern uh, border of the Mediterranean Sea, about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And we said last week that that's really the spot that God strategically uses to be the place from which uh, the gospel message, uh, uh, the, the Christian message is going to move out into the world. It's not as much Jerusalem as it is Syrian Antioch. Uh, and it's there that we find this, uh, just like the city, a cosmopolitan, multicultural, um, vibrant city, pluralistic city. Uh, but God chooses that particular spot as the place from which all his mission work moving forward is going to flow out in the book of Acts. And in the same way that that specific city was strategic, every other move that the Holy Spirit leads his missionaries on is strategic too. You notice when he sends Paul and Barnabas out, we mentioned this last week, the importance of mission work done in cities. Why? Cities are culture, culturally disproportionately influential. All new thoughts all movements, all of that stuff tends to flow out of cities for a variety of different social reasons. But you notice God always has his minister. Remember we said pagan was the word for the person who believes the old religions out in the countryside? It comes from the the Latin paganus. Well, 
God moves Paul and Barnabas into city to city to city and also strategically when they get to those cities, the first thing that they almost invariably do is they go to synagogues. And the reason for that becomes kind of obvious. This is the lowest hanging fruit of the early mission work. Why? Because these people in the Jewish synagogues, these are Jews and these are God-fearing Gentiles, they already believe the, the basic majority of the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. So it isn't that they have misbeliefs so much as they are, have uninformed beliefs. The one piece of information that they still don't understand that is essential for them to be believers moving forward is Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He's the promised Messiah. That's the piece of information. You notice that is always where Paul's teaching goes. And actually, if you'll notice, as we've been going through the book of Acts, in fact, we did this last year too. We spent about uh, seven chapters on Acts after Easter, and this year we've already gone through about four or five of them. If I haven't made this point clear yet, I'm not doing my job of teaching very well. Paul's main mission in the book of Acts and the main story and narrative of Acts is Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. This is the seventh time now in the book of Acts this is overtly stated that this is the thing that changes everything. This is the seventh time also in the book of Acts that we now hear the apostles are witnesses to all of this. This is the most important thing that everyone needs to hear and that's why in verse 37, kind of the central meat and message of Paul's sermon is, the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Now here's why this is so important. Here's why the resurrection is the doctrine above all other doctrines. Um, familiarity can sort of breed contempt. And blessings can become taken for granted and commonplace. And uh, a prophet is never welcome in his hometown and all that other stuff. Many of you have heard about the resurrection of Jesus Christ since your Sunday school days. And for a lot of us, that functionally sort of becomes old news more than it is good news. Don't ever let the resurrection become old news. Like we need to move on to something else that's, that's bigger and brighter and more important for us. To, no. The rest of the Christian life, once you learn about the resurrection of Jesus, is essentially a working out of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. What do I mean? In recent weeks, probably the past month or so, I have had a number of really good conversations with a bunch of you. In fact, this, this month, more than any other, I've probably had more conversations with members. It's, it had to be probably 15 to 20 of you uh, who have, I think it's because we've been talking so much about these conversion accounts, you know, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 10, and it's pressing on a lot of your hearts because a lot of you have uh, loved ones, family members, friends uh, that you know um, don't truly profess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior at this point and, and you're concerned about them. And so when we talk about, okay, how have your conversations up until this point gone with them, very often what I hear you saying is, what has happened to me so often too, that when you have a conversation with a skeptic, the conversation tends to drift off to what I would call sort of the peripheral doctrines of Christianity or the like sanctification, um, you know, the, the things that flow out of the main teachings of scripture but are kind of on uh, the secondary or tertiary realm of doctrine. And so when you have these debates with skeptics in your life and conversations, very often it becomes a debate about things like human sexuality or the American political climate or the gender differentiation or the origin of the universe or the compilation or inspiration of the Bible as uh, an er inerrant sacred text 
or the militancy of God's people in the Old Testament or the shocking predominance and and prevalence of polygamy that exists in the Old Testament uh, or, uh, for that matter, the sins that have been committed by the Christian church throughout history, whether you're talking about the Spanish Inquisition or European imperialism or the Salem witch trials or whatever else. Skeptics always seem to love to talk about those kinds of things. Why? Satan loves for you to debate primarily those kinds of things. You know why? Because let's say, for instance, that you present the most biblically faithful, logically coherent and reasonable, culturally sensitive response to the skeptic about, say, for instance, the issue of human sexuality. Two things can happen. Number one, there's probably a good chance they still won't believe you. And we understand that from the Bible to be because these things are spiritually discerned. The Apostle Paul says the man without the Spirit does not understand the thing that come from the Spirit. Why should we expect a non-believing secular world to, to believe the things that the Spirit says are spiritually received as teaching? Number two, this is what scares me even more. Let's say you spend all your time and all your energy crafting a perfect airtight argument when it comes to the teaching of human sexuality to such an extent that you convince the skeptic in your midst that you are exactly right. Guess what? they are no closer to being saved than they were prior to that, conver- that conversion of thinking. Why? Because right teachings in general don't get people saved. A relationship with Jesus Christ, a knowledge of Jesus Christ as your risen Lord and Savior who died on the cross to pay for all of your sins and who conquered death by emptying his own tomb and therefore can conquer death in our lives too. That alone is information that can get you saved. See, if somebody, for instance, changes their sexual habits because they're so convinced by your argument, but they haven't changed their understanding of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they're just as lost as they were before. And you spent all that time and energy arguing till you're blue in the face on something that didn't move the needle on their eternal welfare. Don't take the bait. Don't play into Satan's distractions. If you spend, here's a metaphor, if you spend all your time and energy building a beautiful sanctuary out there in the mountains, you will still have an empty church. Go and work where work counts. You need to talk to skeptics about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Take every conversation back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus is the most pesky, annoying fact to unbelief. Because what are you going to do with the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the grave? What are you going to do if you're a skeptic with the Apostle Paul's uh, 500 plus, maybe upwards to nearly a thousand living witnesses that he says, don't take my word for it, go and ask those people what happened to Jesus Christ? What are you going to do with the fact that Christianity with almost zero worldly resources is capable of rising to prominence in the Roman Empire that was persecuting it within a matter of a couple centuries? What are you going to do with the fact that Christianity even today remains the only non-regionally locked religion that exists on the planet? What are you going to do with the fact that uh, you have innumerable martyrs in the early Christian church who are not dying for an abstract belief system? Anybody can die for strong convictions. Anybody, and lots of people, martyrs in different religions, die because they hold really strong convictions about what is true. That is very different from dying for a historical fact 
The early Christians were not dying primarily for theology. They were dying because they were convinced that they saw somebody that they loved rise from the grave and they put their hands in his wounds. That's a different level of commitment. That's a different type of thing to die for. And they were so convinced that their hands were not lying to them and that their eyes were not lying to them that they would rather get tortured and killed than even suggest otherwise. The ultimate example of this is seen in the Apostle Paul himself. Because why did Saul of Tarsus convert to Christianity? Was it because he was so enamored with the teachings of Christianity? Did Saul convert because he was so enamored with the amazing Christians in Christianity? No, he hated them. Some of the skeptics who are loved ones in your life get really irritated by Christians. I get it. They weren't more irritated than Saul was. Saul was actually killing Christians. My guess is the skeptics that you love have not been killing Christians. Nobody was more irritated by Christianity's teaching and by Christianity's characters than Saul of Tarsus was. So he didn't believe Christianity because he liked it. Paul decided to believe Christianity because the pesky facts of the resurrection smacked him in the face. And he knew his life couldn't (laughs) go on living a lie opposite that. In other words, let me put it like this. What difference does it make what you feel or what I feel or what anybody else in the world feels about human sexuality or about politics or about human rights or about the origins of the universe if Jesus rose from the grave? If Jesus conquered death, he's more than human. And if he's more than human, then by definition, he's God. And he's figured out the biggest problem that humanity can't figure out, which is our own mortality. And if he's God, that means he knows more than about the humans that he designed than we do ourselves. And then it only stands to reason that whatever he happens to say about sex or about human rights or about origins or about anything else is wiser than human limitations and the foolishness of humanity. If Jesus didn't rise, the Bible is a waste of your time. Be done with it. If Jesus did rise, all bets are off. And what you or I or anybody else feels about any other particular teaching, it can climb into the back seat because he's God. And the only sensible thing at that point is to fall on our knees and worship him as Lord and Savior and submit to whatever it is he says about human life. Jesus is not only Lord, though, deserving of our praise, he's also a Savior deserving of our praise. And Paul always links these two concepts together in his teaching. In verse 37, he says he conquered death. His body didn't see decay. He's Lord. He's master. But then the very next thing he goes on to say is he's also your savior. Worship him for that too. Specifically what he says is, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. It's a justification you were not able to attain under the law of Moses. You know, to, to some extent, I think one of the reasons why we are so inclined to debate peripheral issues with skeptics, yeah, I mean, we know why Satan would have us debate peripheral issues. Um, it's because even if we could possibly convince somebody, they haven't yet become Christian. So he wants us to spend all our time and energy over there not where it can really make a difference for souls. Uh, but why would we be inclined to spend so, off, so much of our time on peripheral issues debating? Why do we consistently fall for that and take the bait? 
I'll tell you why. Because we have this desperate internal desire to be right. Um, Look at how Paul puts it here. He says, look, you have an attempt, you've been making an attempt to justify yourselves your entire lives. But justification, being declared not guilty, being found faultless in the eyes of God can only come as a gift of the grace of Jesus Christ. We want to be right because we want to make ourselves right. And that totally caters to a sinful pride that says we can justify ourselves. If we can just live a little bit better, if our teaching can just be a little bit righter, if we can just be a little bit wiser, if maybe we can treat people just a little bit better, then maybe we can make ourselves right. Maybe we can calm the internal panic that says, I'm not really who I was supposed to be originally. And maybe we can cleanse the shame that all of us are sometimes walking around with that says, uh, you know, you're not good enough. Maybe if we can just be a little writer. And, and I'll tell you what, from a spiritual standpoint and from a pastoral standpoint, the last thing, because I care about you, the last thing that I want you to think is that if you just clean up your life a little bit more, you can make yourself right with God. Paul says, you are not able to attain a relationship with God through the law of Moses. You are not able to make yourself right with God. And therefore, your singular effort as a Christian is not even so much an effort as it's a diversion of your eyes and a diversion of your flesh. And it's appointing yourself continuously to the cross of Jesus, which is the only place that salvation can come from. That is the only place, the cross of Jesus, where you and I can be set free. So here's what you do. Here's the summary of this whole point. Continue to point skeptics where? To the empty tomb. To the empty grave of Jesus Christ that proves that he's Lord. And when they realize that he's Lord, then they'll understand, oh man, I have not been submitting myself to this Lord. And then in that shame where you point them very thing, the very next thing to? The cross of Jesus. So with the skeptic, you point them to the empty tomb, the historical fact, and then you move them right after that to the cross of Jesus. It works almost the exact reverse way with Christians, however. When you're dealing with a fellow Christian, every day where you point one another to is the cross of Jesus Christ and the grace that comes through that and the identity that comes through that. And then you point them into the resurrected life. Let me show you how this works in real time um, because I just want you to see kind of an example of how far off our society is from this now and where people are basically at. Uh, Some of you might have seen this. This past week, uh, it was was The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, if you're familiar with that show. Uh, Keanu Reeves, and I'm going to do everything I can not to slip into a Keanu Reeves impression during the course of uh, this because I don't don't think that's fair and it's just too easy and I'm not going to go there. It's, it, mine is pretty good. It's a pretty good impression, but uh, no, I won't do it. Um, he was talking about his upcoming projects. He's got a couple different upcoming projects, and one of them is the upcoming third installment of the Bill and Ted franchise called Bill and Ted Face the Music. Now, some of you are too young to even remember uh, the splendor that was uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And because there is seemingly an outpouring and tidal wave of support from the the American public, they are deciding to produce a third installment of this movie. Uh, But the premise, he says in the interview, goes like this. He says, basically, the kind of flimsy premise, 
is the future has come down upon life and Bill and Ted, these guys who are kind of uh, high school rock and rollers, they have to produce the best song in world history and that is the only way to save the universe. And it's at that moment that Stephen Colbert, like the gravity of the conversation takes a little bit of a turn and Stephen Colbert says, all right, Keanu Reeves, what do you think happens when we die? And here's what he says. I'll let you watch yeah, it. Yeah, still entirety. trying to write the song because you've got to save the world. Uh -huh. But then the future comes down and says, well, no, you're not really just have to save the world. You have to save the universe and you have to write the song in like 80 minutes. Wow. That's a problem. Wow. Because we haven't written a song in over 25 years. Wow. So what wow. are we going to do? What happens to you if, if you don't do this? Can you well, tell it's me? the end of the universe. It's the end of time and oh, wow. space continuum. So you're facing, it's all your, over. you're facing your own mortality and the mortality of all existence. Yeah. Wow. What do you think happens when we die, Keanu Reeves? I know that the ones who love us will miss us. Did you catch what his response was? I know that the ones who love us will miss us. Um... That clip has actually now gone on. It, it went viral that night and got a, like over 10 million views. And the American public lapped it up because it perfectly fits sentimentally sweet but superficially shallow American spirituality today. Uh, his response, I know that the ones who love us will miss us, it never actually answers the question that was asked to him. The question that was posed to him by Stephen Colbert is, what happens to us when we die? And the implied intent of that question, which is a question that existed on almost every evangelism tract in the 20th century, was what happens to us when we die? And very subtly, after a big gasp, what he did is he turned the question around just slightly and he pivoted it to say, what happens to our loved ones when we die? And his response to that is, the ones who loved us will miss us. And that is the most obvious possible response you could offer. Anybody who has ever lost a loved one knows that they will be missed. Anybody who has not even lost a loved one but who has been to a funeral knows that that loved one is going to be missed. When life happens, and more importantly, when death happens, the people in your life need more than a shallow, sweet-sounding response that is simply a deflection of life's most important question. Don't deflect. You can get a viral deflection for 10 million views. It won't save one soul. Don't deflect. You have something better than that. In fact, don't even just tell them that things are going to get better, even though that's true. Because sometimes we say that so-and-so is going to a better place, and that is absolutely true, but it doesn't tell the full story. Because what it doesn't do is it doesn't take care of the past damages. If we just go off to some paradise land from there on out, we still have to deal with the past hurt. Jesus doesn't just rise to a new life that is completely different from everything that happened. He lives a resurrected life. Do you understand the difference between the two? The body, the life that gets ravaged by sin for the sake of Jesus Christ, proven at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is a life that gets reassembled. It becomes the way it was always supposed to be. All your broken pieces, 
by the time that you die, they don't just get swept away and tossed into a garbage can so that you get new pieces when you get to heaven. All those old pieces get reassembled in such a way as though they were never shattered in the first place, as though sin had never touched them in the first place. That's the point of the resurrection. The ones who love us will miss us. No, that is not good enough. The loved ones who die in Christ won't miss us for very long. We'll hold each one another again thanks to the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for getting distracted and sometimes getting hung up on the periphery. Help us boldly through our words and our actions proclaim your resurrection and proclaim your life until it comes. I thank you, Lord, that because of Jesus' resurrection, because of the gift of forgiveness of sins, because of the new life that is the true life, and I will, I will be able to hug my dad again someday. I will be able to hug many dear friends again someday. And anybody here in this room who has fellow loved ones who die in Christ will be able to wrap their arms around them as, as well. Thank you for a resurrection to a life that really is life. In your name we pray. Amen.